Welcome to the AJP Heart and Zerk podcast. I'm Kara Hansel-Keehan. Today we'll discuss a new article by Marrera et al. titled, Importance of Survey Demographic Questions to Foster Inclusion in Medicine and Research and Reduce Health Inequities for LGBTQIA2S Plus Individuals. This article was published April 28, 2023. Joining us today are authors Dr. Carla Hawk, Dr. Jesse Marrera, and Dr. Troy Repke. Let's get started. Carla? Thank you for joining me. I am so excited to be chatting with you all today about the editorial we wrote together for AJP Heart. I feel like this article in particular has a very fun backstory that I think would be worth sharing. So Jesse and Troy, how did writing this editorial come about? Yeah, um, thanks for that question. So we each kind of have probably part of this to tell, you know, began with a survey that had been put out by the APS. And, you know, sometimes we don't necessarily get everything right when we do something and that's all right. But um, it's really important that we call each other into conversations about it. And so I think that's where we begin. Um, Troy, you want to mention what what all your thoughts were? Uh, uh, Sure. First of all, I want to thank you all for being here and for inviting me to participate in this conversation. Uh, Yeah, so there was a survey last year that, uh, let's just say, was problematic. And I called it out on social media right away after I took it. And that brought Jesse into the conversation and Carla into the conversation and other people who were also very concerned about it, uh, which then led to one of the editors, I believe, of this journal to ask us to write an editorial about uh, survey questions to inform the community uh, on best practices. And I appreciate that Troy and Jesse are not calling me out. <laughs> but I did not at the time. I, I have been um, working in the DEI space for a long time. And while a lot of my efforts have been in other marginalized communities and not necessarily um, solely with the LGBTQ community, I, I asked the fearless question. I said, tell me what's wrong so that we can all learn here. And I think that Mary Lindsay, the editor-in-chief of AJP Heart, really saw this as an opportunity to say, well, if someone who's knowledgeable in this space, at least you know, big DEI umbrella terms is having some issues with this. Let's take this opportunity to talk about this some more and always come from a place of growth mindset and knowledge and where, you know, Jesse, I think you already started out. It's okay to make mistakes, right? We're all going to make mistakes. None of us are perfect, but learning and and growing is, is paramount. So I thought it would be really fun to share with our audiences really how how this came about. Um, and I'm so, so, so excited to be here with you all today. So Jesse, can you give us an overview of our editorial and what are the key messages that you want the reader to come away with? So big, broad strokes, we're gonna get into much, you know, more details later, but big, broad strokes, what, what is this editorial about? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Just like thinking you know, broadly about it, it's, it's about doing inclusive, research and 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 uh, making sure that at the very core of what you're doing is an inclusive open mindset um, because 
far too often we, whether intentionally at the worst case or at the best case with implicit bias, um, unintentionally exclude groups of entire swaths, groups of people with simple something as simple as demographic questions on an intake survey for a human participants research study. So we really lay out here the why you should care and the how you should go about including LGBTQIA2S plus people in your intake demographics so that you can gain as much knowledge as possible about this community. Troy, do you have anything you want to add? Certainly. I think the big take-home message I would like people to understand is that they shouldn't be afraid to collect this data. Like we want this delay data collected. We just want it done in a way that's not also going to add to the harm that we are already experiencing. Right. And so it is not an admonishment for anybody to do doing things wrong, to be like, don't do this, don't collect data. It is literally just here's a way to do it that's actually going to increase participation of this population who is already experiencing marginalization uh, across the board, across society. I think that's such a fantastic point to highlight. You know, why would you not want to tell people all of the wonderful things that you are, but you have to be queried in such a way that allows you to do that without fear? So to that point, Jesse, we talk a lot about language in this editorial. Tell me more about how the words we use can influence our interactions with potential participants in our trials. So words, we agonized over the words in this piece, importantly so, and rightfully so, because they are so important to get right. Because, you know, words are everything. Words can cut deep, you know, um, if they're the wrong words. And, and you know, they say sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. That's not true. That's not true. You can, you can do a lot of damage to someone with your words. Um, even if you're not cussing them out, you know, in, in a survey demographic, when you have, for example, a limited gender binary options, and then the word other, that word other rings true for people who are other, you know, and don't want to feel like other because they, they're, they have a valid um, identity that has a word for it. And they deserve to feel like they can check a box too on that, on that survey. Um, and it really is no extra effort on the part of the researcher at at all. It's zero percent extra effort to just go the mile of putting in these inclusive kinds of wording. Is something as simple as having a semi-exhaustive list, you know, for gender, and then having I self-describe as with a fill in the blank for allowing someone to put an option that is not there. The the framing of that is not that you're an other. It's that. Your option wasn't listed, maybe, but but you're self-describing as this, and that's a true statement. You're not willingly accepting being othered, for example. Um, and so that along we discuss, you know, at 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 length, as well as discussing things like pronoun use um, and the ways that researchers can introduce themselves with their pronouns and with care, ask a participant during an intake, what are your pronouns so that I can make sure I'm using them correctly? Um, when you interact with them, this kind of extra five to 10 seconds in the interaction makes a world of difference for the sense of belonging experienced by a potential study participant. And so, yeah, words are just super important, I think. I think words also are a way for science to be more exact. 
right? We want precision. We talk about precision medicine all the time. Well, how are you being precise if you're not actually identifying the people you're trying to practice precision medicine on, <laughs> right? So this is just a way for people, for, med for medicine, for investigators to do precise science. I love that. I feel so often in the DEI space, right? You always get siloed. And one of my favorite things about this editorial is that we put the science at the forefront. We talk about it being from a place of precision and capturing the most accurate data that we possibly can. Um, I think that there's so much power in that. And I, I really like um, how we have underscored that particular point in the editorial. Troy, I have a question for you. So our editorial does not shy away from addressing our current political landscape. What advice do you have for investigators in the academic setting, particularly in states in which there is increasing anti-LGBTQ plus legislation? I think this is a difficult question because I am not one of those people. Fortunately, I live in a state that is not restrictive, but that could always change. It's sometimes it's appropriate to fight the good fight, right? To start some good trouble. And if you are being restricted in your state in studying our community, working with our community, well, it's time to be an ally and stand up for us. Stand up for the science that we need, the healthcare we need, the legal protections that we need. And so be that person, you know? We, we need allies. We need people who are willing to sacrifice because we have to sacrifice all the time for our survival. And so I know that's a bit much for scientists to think about sometimes, but in this day and age, we need people to be passionately engaged with that at all levels. I entirely agree with you, Troy, and can't underscore enough how science is not apolitical. Um, I think that that is an excuse a lot of folks unfortunately use to placate themselves into a place where they feel that they don't have to um, rock the boat. I, if you know me in real life, um, you'll know that I regularly rock the boat with intention. Um, and I agree that starting some good trouble is a good thing. But yeah, science is intensely political. Everything we do ripples and uh, through the whole world. And, and science is often even misused by, you know, the other side so that they can make claims that aren't necessarily true or accurate representations of science to support bigotry um, and hate and uh, particularly at this time, anti-trans legislation. So I think that, I don't know, I take a very firm black and white moral stance on this. You're kind of with us at this point or you're not. Um, you can't really Agreed. live in any kind of moral gray right now. There's no moral gray. There's no shadow in the corner for you to stand in. Um, everything has been exposed and both sides' cards are on the table. And you really do have to make an informed decision at this point of whether you're going to stand up for what's right or whether you aren't. Um, and so I know personally, I wasn't afraid at all to venture into a, a political segment within this editorial that came up, actually, I think um, the three of us were on the call, at least not everyone had made that call that day. But when it was brought up, well, we should add a section that discusses the current climate and how it how it very much is an attack on these people. And I, we were like very unanimous. Like, yeah, that's an outstanding idea. So I think more people need to take firmer stances, frankly. I would add to that. I really would like to see societies whose research actually affects the community, 
take more political stances. I've been advocating for that for my societies and endocrine society, which does a pretty good job, you know, because they actually work with endocrinologists who do trans health, you know, but there are other societies. Neuroscience really needs to, uh, to step up. And I'm sure physiology, same thing. It's endocrinology, it's physiology. We need to be more vocal because it is our science that is being used for these nefarious purposes. And yet I often see leadership in these fields be completely silence about that. I think what's interesting that I'm hearing from the two of you is that, um, and really tying this back into to kind of our previous question about how words matter, right? I, I think that we have the opportunity to collect that data and to validate simply by the questions that we ask. That doesn't feel revolutionary to me. That just feels thorough, right? And, you know, as scientists, we are nothing if not thorough. So it doesn't, it doesn't seem like that should be that hard. And both of you have already sort of hinted at this, but I, I'd like you to answer a question about allyship very directly. Allyship is a powerful tool that is often misunderstood at best and performative at worst. So what does a good ally look like? I have I have some thoughts here. <laughs> believe, it or not, believe it or not. Um, Tell I, me all of them. <laughs> I, you know, I, I want to begin with something that I was put on to recently, not recently, maybe a year ago, um, in my quest to become a better anti-racist in this context. And this is very much true, I also believe, as a queer person about how we need to support queer people. Allyship in general is becoming performative in its entirety. Um, and there was a notion that was put on for me, at least, that was that we need to move from allyship to accompliceship. Um, and being an ally is to align one's moral and personal ethical views with what is probably the right side of the issue, um, but may not necessarily involve taking active steps to do work in a community to go out into a community that's underrepresented or underserved and ask them what they need to leverage your privilege for them. That is accompliceship. That's saying, I don't stand behind you. I stand hand in hand with you. Um, and we're in this together. I am going to fight this fight with you. I'm going to fight this fight. You know, when you give me something to lift up for you, I, I am very much in this with my whole self. And so I think, um, People like to use this word ally often as a way to also placate themselves into believing they've done enough. When in reality, you can ask someone what physical steps, what monetary donations, what actionable items have you performed that have resulted in change or supported change? And that I think is where we need to head. Don't just tweet, I stand with the queer community, go to a rally write a letter to your legislator, make a change to the way you vote with queer people in mind. I, I totally agree with all of that, uh, Jesse. Those are wonderfully said. Um, and I'm coming to the same sort of conclusions that allyship, especially in social media, is just, it's vacuous. It's really what we want to see is action. So we want to see support. One of the things I'm working on right now with the various societies uh, that I'm a part of is why are we meeting in places like Florida and Arizona and Texas when our trans and queer colleagues are in jeopardy or 
our people who can get pregnant colleagues are in jeopardy if they need reproductive access, uh, healthcare access, right? To me, this should be an easy decision, but it's not apparently. So, you know, being active in that is part of, I'm trying to bring people in who are not necessarily thinking about it, but I'm like, well, this could benefit you. Anybody who can get pregnant should be worried about this just like anybody who's part of the trans or queer community, right? There's gotta be action, right? And as, as Jesse was saying, and action can be writing letters, it can be giving money, it could be protesting, it could be going to a march, to a protest, it could be a lot of different things. It could also be understanding what the bystander effect is, and if you see something, you intervene. You say something, you don't let somebody be victimized by somebody who's racist or sexist or homophobic, transphobic. Like you step in and you'd be like, no, that's not, I've done that. I know Jesse has done that. We all have had to put ourselves in line because we can't let people be victimized and not do anything about it. Allyship is very important. It's like, to me, it's like the basement. Everybody should be an ally, right? It's like, you don't get kudos for being an ally. You should, it's like, yes, you're a decent human being. Good for you. Like it's now it's like, what are you going to do next to actually make something happen? That's where it counts. I love this so much. One of my favorite quotes in John Lewis's memoir, Walking with the Wind, is he's talking about there's different, he was talking about the civil rights movement and he was saying that there are different ways to be part of the movement. And for some people, it is like he did, right? It was being on the front lines. It was but for other people, it was going into their communities and and teaching in a different way or interacting with, vo- you know, helping with voter registration. Those like there. And what I, I really appreciate um, about everything both of you just said is that, you know, there are ways to be a good accomplice. And it's certainly not on Twitter. Um, it is in real life. If you're doing something to get kudos or get acknowledgement, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. I totally agree with that. Like, I think that's a problem that's arisen from social media is people put everything on there. And so they get social clout and dopamine and they think this is another way to achieve that. Like, I don't even think sometimes it's poorly intentioned. They just think I should put this here because the way social media warriors do anti-racism is they have to post about it for it to matter. And I don't want them to perceive that I don't matter and I'm not doing it. But it's like, it really is about being able to close your eyes and go to sleep at night knowing you did the right thing, not about posting for social clout. I'm always trying to think of things like, okay, if you could just go do, if if you could have like an advocate or an ally or an accomplice in your departments or just one person in your institution that was like, Troy, Jesse, just what's one thing I can do in my classroom or in my in my work sector to advocate and sponsor the LGBTQ community? What's one thing, just one thing? And you can give me 10 things too, because I'd like to hear all 10 things. As somebody who's been teaching students now for 12 years, it has been one of the greatest joys and also kind of a challenge to build a classroom that is inclusive. I literally am teaching animal reproduction every year. And reproduction is such a binary field. Everybody thinks it's all right. And so to build in language that is not exclusive, like literally is I have to I talk about the different experiences of humans, but then I also talk about how animals themselves reproduce in a variety of different ways. It's not all about male and female and doing, you know, like so 
building an inclusive space in your classroom will increase student participation and learning, especially from students who are coming from backgrounds that have been excluded and marginalized, right? And so that doesn't necessarily just mean just about queerness, but uh, race, ethnicity, immigrant status, disability status, uh, whatever. So to me, that's like at a university, your job is in part to teach, like we could revolutionize uh, the academic environment if everybody did that, like really intentionally tried to make classrooms, even if you're teaching something like math or biochemistry, to be inclusive. I went the same direction in my thought process, mostly too, I would say, because this is so this is my area of scholarship. I don't have a wet lab research program. I, I study inclusive pedagogy. And we've seen the anecdotes. Everyone who does this knows that it's true. But like I wanted to fight kind of the notion that it's not with data, which is why I do the research I do. And I have literal data, which is the currency language of scientists, that shows that students who are in an inclusive classroom, and this is two things I want to expand upon. One, inclusive in your pedagogy. So the things you're teaching, the content has been, you've looked over it and you've thought, what is a way to frame this or present extra things that most people would probably leave out to help really drive home inclusivity and that this affects different populations. It, like Troy was saying, a lot of things aren't binary as they're initially presented. Um, so what about the content? And additionally, and I found this to be critical, the authenticity of the instructor in bringing their whole self to work. Um, there's a notion that you can't get in front of the classroom without turning your professor on. Um, I don't have a professor self. I exist semi-unprofessionally in all facets of my life. Um, Same. Same. <laughs> I wear whatever I want to wear um, and I get up there and I cuss in class and I say girl and yes and I still have students who in taking my version of cardiovascular pathophysiology which is slide for slide save some of my inclusive content exactly identical to the few previous instructors we've had standard deviations higher in their outcomes same exams same lectures um, the vibe you change about the classroom, bringing an authentic self breaks down stress barriers for students. Um, there was this incredible paper. I want to, I want to bring this up because I talk about this in class when I tell the students why I teach this way. There's this incredible paper that talked about locus ceruleus or the central noradrenergic nucleus in the brainstem innervation of prefrontal cortices of the amygdala, um, of all these structures that are involved in stress responses. Um, and stress responses, as I'm sure you can imagine, are high in your average college student. They are doing their best as a pre-med to get that 4.0. When they are chronically stressed, alpha adrenergic signaling in the frontal cortices and stress response regions of the limbic system inhibit long-term conversion uh, of memories, right? So working memory does not translate into long-term memory when you're very stressed. And that's protective for trauma. But if you have a student who's literally being traumatized by organic chem, what are the odds they're taking that away with them? And so I break this classroom into a very non-stressful, very low stress colloquial environment where I get on their level with them. I sit on the front desk with my legs crossed and tell them cool stories about disease states. And like, they can ask as many questions as they want. And I tell them on day one, if you even snicker at someone's question because you think it's dumb, you'll be like, you know, out so fast, your head will spin. Like there's no room for that here. So 
they tell me, oh my God, all I had to do this semester was learn in your classroom. I did not have to worry. I did not, they'll say, I didn't feel like your tests were going to kill me. They were very fair, hard, but fair questions. You gave us prep guides for the exams. You answered our questions. You one time did an entire lecture over because no one understood it. You didn't say, well, we have to move on. It's not hard to teach and be kind and like a human. So if you show up, you're authentic, and you spend five minutes every day thinking how to make some facet of your lecture more inclusive, you're going to revolutionize teaching. And this paper is coming soon, people. This paper is coming soon. Yeah. I- <laughs> Just asking for a I have. Are you, are you thinking of submitting that to, uh, I, don't, I don't know, Advances in Physiology Education? I may or may not have already emailed Barb Goodman about it. So she she actually asked <laughs> I emailed her quite some time ago and I'm I am agonizing over getting this paper right and the discussion of the data correct. And and you know, and she said at the meeting to me, she goes, Hey, where is this paper? <laughs> it was like it's coming, Go Barb. it's coming. Go Barb. I love it. I love awesome. it. I love awesome. it. So I have to ask you all a follow-up question because I have I, I have heard this in other discussions as it relates to these sorts of topics. Well, what if I am a cishet white male, right? When we think about the makeup of the majority of our faculty at academic institutions, right? Individuals who have not had, frankly, if you want to call it kind of coming from a place of power, from having a lived experience, from belonging to a marginalized group, right? And you've already sort of answered this, but I want both of you to answer this loud and clear for the cheap seats. What do you mean by authenticity if you are not a member of a marginalized group? So if you're listening and you were at the session that Carla so kindly invited me to at the summit um, that she hosted, you'll know what I'm going to say. But if you were not, you should reach out to Ed Merritt um, and you should ask, as a cis straight white guy, self-identified, you know, at the summit, what do you do to make your classroom more inclusive and why does it matter? Um, and I like this example. This was like a beautiful example. Ed talked about the buy-in that he has as this, you know, white guy. This he's so what did he say? Muscle head or something? Uh, exercise physiology. I think he used I think he used the term meathead, maybe. Meathead. <laughs> as a meathead, a self-proclaimed meathead, um, he has buy-in with the student meatheads. We all know them. We have them in our classes. They love physiology, Um, especially they're going to ask you about skeletal muscle and stuff like that and hypertrophy. When you have the privilege of being a part of that group, for example, you have the buy-in of the students who belong to that group in the room um, who may not necessarily be bought into something that a, a trans Black woman in front of the classroom is saying because nobody listens to people with marginalized identities, let alone intersectionality. And so it's like, you have a voice that people will listen to. And so you can advocate, as we were saying before, for these marginalized groups and tell stories, counter stories that help us understand perspectives we may not have. And I do think that a part of being an accomplice to come another element in here is doing the due diligence of your own to learn about a community without burdening them by asking them a million questions. I was asked this um, in a podcast within my university that I was on by another faculty member last week, you know, and she said, what can people do to learn more? As we've written here and are talking about now, there are scientifically backed articles. There is peer reviewed educational material available on PubMed for you 
to simply search out, download, read, and educate yourself with, just like you would on any paper um, in your physiological discipline. I feel like uh, that question is one of, it's very important because, again, the majority of people who are teaching are cisgendered and heterosexual. Most of them are white and most of them are male. And until there's buy-in from that community, this sort of change in how we teach is not really going to happen or not be universal, right? It won't be the universal experience when it should be. And being authentic, in my mind, is being true to who you are, but at the same time, realizing that you don't know everything, right? So I know who I am. I'm, I'm that way in front of 24-7 in front of my students. I get lovely emails sometimes from them. Sometimes I don't, but I, you know, because they appreciate that I, I am, I am who I am, and I, I talk about that and I joke about stuff. But at the same time, I understand that not everybody's going to be like understand that. So I'm not going to force everybody to agree, not force everybody to fit what I think is what the appropriate way to be. But at the same time, people need to be aware that this is how in this class we're not going to talk about sex and gender in the way that the society talks about sex and gender. We're going to talk about sex being and gender being a, a, a range of, of attributes, not just whether or not you have gametes that do one thing or another, right? So I give them my framework, they can accept that framework. And so that's being authentic, right? A, a person who is not as majoritarian uh, can do the same. This is like, this is my framework, but I'm willing to listen to yours as well. To me, th that's being authentic. This is who I am, who you are. Let's have a dialogue about that. If you're, I'm a white person, there's a white person, I'm very sensitive. There's a large history of racism and violence against black people in the reproductive field. So I talk about that. Like, I'm not going to shy away from that. I don't want to re-traumatize anybody who's black in my, in, in student, in black student in my class. But at the same time, I want to share like, yes, a lot, what we know about gynecological processes are due to this one dude doing awful things to enslave black women. That's the history, right? So it is about bringing in what happened and then giving it the context. Like that's not acceptable, but this is what we know. So my last question for both of you today is um, we've talked about a lot of things as they kind of relate to our editorial, but what is one thing that we included in our editorial that you would like to underscore and expand upon? You know, we've talked a lot today, but the physiology of this, you know, in, in marginalized communities is also very close to my heart because a lot of it is cardiovascular related. There are a lot of cardiovascular mortality uh, inequities in, in queer communities that are just starting to be unearthed from the few studies that have bothered to look. But part of our argument for why you should do this was, as you said much earlier, Carla, related to there being physiological underpinnings here. This is scientific in nature doing this work. And so I want to underscore that there are cardiovascular health inequities. Um, and just maybe briefly, I want to mention a few of them. It has been well demonstrated now in, in studies that there is an increased risk of developing or having hypertension, right? The odds ratios are much higher in bisexual populations in particular. And then in some studies in, that were large enough, I think, to detect the differences in uh, gay men, uh, in lesbian women. So we think about lots of different cardiovascular diseases, right, that exist. But I think hypertension is a major driver for lots of uh, adverse cardiovascular outcomes, heart attack, 
um, stroke, chronic kidney disease are all, hypertension is the major risk factor there, right? And hypertension is the silent killer. It contributes to 10% of all deaths worldwide. When we think about why hypertension is so prevalent in these populations, I want people to think about emerging physiologies, right? There are probably underlying drivers of hypertension in this population, these populations that are distinct from the mechanisms of essential hypertension in the general population. We think essential hypertension, we throw someone on an ACE inhibitor and an ARB or a diuretic, done for the majority of people. We've solved the problem, right? Really, that's not so true in the general population. You're only getting like 50 to 60% of people responding to those drugs. I think there are underlying differences related to the stress that we were talking about earlier here. What's going on, and this goes back to Myers minority stress theory, which has recently been elaborated upon in a way that demonstrates how psychological and social stressors compound with maladaptive coping strategies um, like tobacco use, which, you know, not for nothing, the queer community as with communities of color are also targeted for tobacco use compared to other populations, and then interact with formed conditions like generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, um, major depressive disorder, to drive differences in underlying sympathetic outflow, chronic stress responses with HPA axis activity. And we know from our animal models, when you pump noradrenaline into a rat, it's not going to have high angiotensin levels, but it's going to have high blood pressure. Fill a rat with cortisol and then salt load, like most Americans are salt loaded, they develop hypertension as well. Um, and so probably these mechanisms of hypertension in these populations even have underlying distinct physiologies. Uh, and that's going to require us to think in a treatment sense differently for these populations, because I don't know that they will respond to ACE inhibitors super well, or angiotensin receptor blockers or diuretics. They're not fluid overloaded, for example. They might need a vasodilator, a calcium channel blocker, you know, an alpha adrenergic blocker. And so one thing I wanna underscore is there are definitely differences in disease prevalence and incidence that are probably related to difference in disease pathophysiology in these communities. Um, and I implore cardiovascular scientists to study this, get a cohort of people together, do a single blood draw. That IRB is not that complicated. You know, look at sympathetic measures in these people, look at, look at blood hormone levels um, of stress related pathways, you know, assess vascular tone with Doppler. These, these kinds of things are going to change the, the treatment paradigms for these underserved communities. So you, Jesse, talked about what I wanted to talk about, kind of, which was minority stress. Like that to me is, I study chronic stress in terms of neurological outcomes. So to me, it's like, well, this totally makes sense why it would also affect sympathetic outflow and all the stuff that Jesse just eloquently talked about, right? So to me, it's, it's an important thing to think about when you're studying this community is the minority stress component. Because especially depending on location, their stress could be very high right now. You know, my stress is high and I'm in a state that isn't as regressive as some other states. It is there's an area of an investigation that I think we should really focus on when we're focusing on this community, our community. Collecting this data is not a difficult ask. It's literally just the bright words on a paper or on a form or on a, on a portal or whatever. Oh, can I just add to that? 
I'm right now, right. There are lots of great studies from like, um, you know, data collected that's publicly available by the CDC, like NHANES data Mm -hmm. are out there, the um, behavioral risk factor surveillance survey, and not every state uses the SOGI model uh, module of for their data, but a lot do. If you don't want to analyze the data, collect it for me. I will analyze it for you. <laughs> I am happy to take a free data set and run some statistics. Like that's this is a low bar to clear here, people. So if you have the data too and you're not going to use them, share them. Find a collaborator. This work matters so much. This is something that you all have touched on. But again, I'm gilding the lily here, but given the fact that we all have a mic and a voice, I think this is a question worth asking, even though I know you kind of have already said the answer, but I want you to say it really explicitly. What I have heard, and I'm sure you two have heard it even more than I have, is are we sure these questions aren't too personal? Are we sure we want to ask these these questions? What do you say to that, Jesse and Troy? The reason I would disagree with that to give like an an elaborate answer than to just go, they're not, because that's my answer too. Like they're not, is uh, it depends who's asking and how you're asking, I guess. So the two thoughts related to this are how you're asking. We elaborate uh, ad nauseum in this editorial on how you should ask. Um, so please read it. But, you know, for summary's sake, like, yeah, you have to ask these questions right and inclusively and kindly and gently because they are sensitive questions. They're not too personal, but they are sensitive. Someone asks me if I'm trans, you know, like, it's like a, ooh, I just met you. But but like, you know, do you seem approachable and kind and like you're going to do well with this information? Do I believe in the mission of this study and was it approachable, you know, for me as a person? That matters. And two, I should see myself reflected on the research study team. Um, And this is something we had a one-liner about, but which there is a wonderful um, additional perspective um, in AJP Hart that came out recently. I want to say Chantal uh, Ritz um, was on this this piece, and it was about um, inclusive research for the the trans and non-binary community. And one of the major points they lay out, which I agree with entirely, is having representation in the form of trans and non-binary scientists on the study team. So the next time you're thinking about asking these questions and you're wondering, and you want to ask a trans or non-binary person if they're too personal, look around the study group table as you're sitting there with them or around your Zoom call. Are there any trans and non-binary people on the study team? If not, pause. You need to ask someone in a non-tokenizing way who also brings scientific expertise to the study to help round out the inclusivity of the the group identities on the study team. That will help improve the quality of the study, the quality of the questions you ask, the way you interface with that community in in a genuine way. And then you need to remember to read our, our piece on how to ask the questions. When somebody says, oh, the question is too personal, it reminds me of this thing in pop culture where we can know all the details of a cis heterosexual movie star's romantic life, but God forbid we ask a potential queer or somebody who is under, unknown about there because it's too personal, right? So it's only too personal when it's about queer people. It's not too personal when it's about the cis het world, right? So. 
that's my first reaction is like, oh, you're just trying to keep us in a closet. You don't want to know about us. That's what I think about. Exactly. When somebody says, oh, it's not, it's too personal. Maybe it's too personal. I'm like, no, you're, you're telling me you don't want to do this risky thing that may put you out there to be like, somebody may come for you because you did it wrong. Well, you can read our article and understand how to do it right. <laughs> and our article will probably not be the end all be all because this stuff will evolve and it will change over time. I just want to thank you, Troy, Jesse, and Carla, for talking with the AJP Heart and Sark podcast. Your insights have been enlightening, thoughtful, and have given us a roadmap to not just be allies, but be accomplices and start a little good trouble. So may we all go forward and do just that. I, I've enjoyed this. So thank you again. Thank you again for the opportunity. It's been fun. Likewise, it was a real pleasure to get to talk with you all. I like all of you so much. So this was just like hanging out with my friends anyways. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of the AJP Heart and Cirque podcast. Our theme music was written and performed by Ray Mitchell. Catch the latest episodes of our podcast at physiology.org journal slash AJP Heart.